I am Simone Cipriani and I am an officer of the United Nations. And I'm Claire Press and I'm a sustainable fashion journalist. You are listening to the Ethical Fashion Podcast. We can change the world. I can't quite believe it, but this is episode 10. It's the last one in series one. We've come to the end of the first series. Simone and I are so grateful to you for listening and joining us in these conversations. But do not despair. We've got good news. We'll be back for a second series, bringing you more access and stories from people really building a more sustainable fashion future. So that is very exciting. Watch this space. We'll have more dates for you soon. But in the meantime, don't be a stranger. You can connect with Ethical Fashion on Instagram at Ethical Fashion and, of course, via the EFI website, which is ethicalfashioninitiative.org. And we'd love you or we'd encourage you to go back and catch up on any episodes that you might have missed or revisit your favourites. And also thank you so much for all the reviews and the shares. We really love it when you let others know about this podcast series. So thank you for that. We've had some absolutely brilliant guests, too many to list them all here, but I did just want to mention episode seven with Zulaika Sherzad all about Made in Kabul because it's directly related to this week's interview, which is with the wonderful, sparkling Jeanne de Croon. Jeanne is the founder of a social enterprise that works with EFI called Zazi Vintage. Check them out on Instagram. It's at Zazi, Z-A-Z, dot vintage. Jeanne had her first few dresses made using vintage ikat fabric in northern India after meeting a woman called Madhu Vaishnav, who runs an NGO there and works with women and girls in rural communities. Now fast forward a few years and Jeanne has built on that work. She's working with communities in India, Afghanistan, Uzbekistan and Zazi Vintage has been featured in Vogue, stocked by Matches Fashion. And it's on a mission, as Jeanne says, to connect and weave cultures together through cloth. It's a beautiful story. Let's get into it. Welcome to the Ethical Fashion Podcast, Jeanne de Croon. Hello. You said before it's Beauties and the Beast. The Beauties. Who's the Beast? The title of this emission is The Beauties and the Beast. I'll take that compliment. Come and, on. and of course the Beast is me. Okay, okay. Jeanne, I want to begin by asking you about your incredible, fabulous wardrobe and starting with what you were wearing last night, this beautiful ikat. Can you tell us about it? Yes, most certainly. So yesterday I was wearing a, a dress made out of ikat fabric. So ikat is a tradition that you can sort of find all along the Silk Road and it starts in Indonesia and it made its way all the way over through the trade connections, through Kabul, where you have your certain special weaving uh, ikat tradition all the way throughout the Silk Road and ends in Turkey. Oh, it doesn't end there because it goes all over the world. But yesterday I was wearing um, an ikat outfit that is made by Zarif. Um, and I think you've spoken to her, so you heard all about her beautiful story. And it's 100% upcycled, which means that we've collected that stock all along the Silk Road from already existing traders that have, let's say, 100 meter left there and 100 meter left there. And we've created a new collection out of it, which sort of comes down to like the mission of Zazi. How can you create livelihoods without actually taking new resources from the earth? I love it. And it's important for you to do that, to really yeah. look for existing materials so that you're yeah. not adding. A hundred percent, because I sort of got into fashion at some point during university, but I've spent a lot of time in East Africa where I did a few projects. And I think there I got blown away by the amount of waste materials that you can find there, especially coming from Western countries. 
And I was astonished by the amount of waste we create per year. Fun um, fact, we are now producing double the amount of clothes globally as we were 15 years ago. So it's something yeah. close to 100 billion garments a year. And waste is one of the biggest problems we have. So yeah. for creative designers, I think it's so amazing to be able to look at what we've already got. Totally, because it's like a puzzle. It's like a really interesting puzzle. Because you, you look at the world and you look at the current system that we have, which works in a certain way, and you try to find out new inventive ways on how to play within that and thrive without wasting I have a question, and I know the answer, but I I think it's important to share it because it's a beautiful story. The origin of the name Zazi, why your brand is called Zazi Vintage, it's a literary thing, and it's something linked to your family, to your father. To everything, To your childhood. My second name is Zizi. It's my full name in Jean Zizi, Margot de Crohn. My dad always used to call me Zazi because there is this movie in France, I've actually never watched it, but it's called Zazie dans le métro. It's a, a novel by Raymond Queneau, which was also a very successful movie, and it was extremely successful in its own days. Yeah. And uh, he called, he used to call you Zazie. He used to call me Zazie, because when I was a little Zazie. troublemaker here, Zazie he said, like, you are Zazie. So then at some point when I started my business and I work, was working with this Afghan family, I was selling some of their Afghan goods at the local Berlin markets. And then I found out that one of the national embroideries of Afghanistan is also Zazi. So there were all of these like funny serendipities so coming nice. on my path. Yeah. And also with the connection with Afghanistan, like it's been there not just through my the way that my dad called me or like this fabric, but we had many Afghan friends and then... I felt like when I started my company first with the Afghan family and then afterwards in Afghanistan with you and the Ethical Fashion Initiative. So it's been very So it aligned. brings all together. It brings it all together. Remember the first time I met you in New York, <laughs> Jean, we were at the headquarters of the United Nations. I was speaking in some conference. You were in the public and you came down the stairs with one of those wonderful coats on your arm and then full of colors. And you told me very seriously, we have to work together. <laughs> and I replied in a way that usually scares everybody. Yes, we can work together in Afghanistan or in, or in Mali. And you said, yes, I'm ready. Let's go. <laughs> you said to me before today. she was in a good way, like a mad woman. <laughs> like, yes, like, all right, let's go. In a very good way, completely mad. Because when I mentioned Afghanistan, I said, yes, let's go to war there. Yeah, I like the idea. Amazing. <laughs> Tell us the story of the coat. So the coat sort of happened, when did it happen? It happened around four years ago. I stopped buying any new garments. When I was in India, I came across this beautiful Afghan family. And they had sort of been vintage traders because Kabul used to always be this sort of like hub of where all the vintage from the Silk Road came together. So what happened is that I met this family. We had saffron tea and we had nuts and we talked about... It's always the tea. It's the tea. It's It's the tea. (laughs) Yeah, I just remember like this plate full of mulberries and we're sitting in this tiny sweaty room in India. It must have been 45 Celsius. And they had the whole room full of textiles all along, all from the Silk Road because his father bought a lot of textiles when the Russians came in 79 and a lot of families left Afghanistan. And we talked for ages about Nuristani to 1920s dresses and we talked about the special relationship the Kalash tribe from Pakistan had to towards the divine. And I remember sitting there together with the ladies and, and picking out the mulberries and mixing them together with the raisins. And they were showing me this fabric, this Susani fabric, 
fabric and I, I had a special relationship to it. And at some point I thought like, wait a minute, my dad, who was obsessed with Jimi Hendrix and sort of wanted to be Jimi Hendrix, but he's an awkward Dutch guy, so that would never happen, used to always show me this picture of this great 70s coat. I know it so well. When I first discovered your Instagram, that was the thing that I connected with because I'm obsessed with 60s culture. <laughs> yeah. We'll share a picture, that iconic picture of Hendrix. He's surrounded by color and embroidery and he's, it's the Afghan coat, you know, yeah. iconic 60s thing. Yeah. So what is Suzani? Suzani comes from um, needlework. It's a work in Farsi. And basically what happens is Suzani, I mean, it has different traditions all over Central Asia. When a bride gets married, they receive a Suzani embroidered blanket or rug because it's their marital gift. So this is why you can find like in every single region a very different explanation on like what that would look like a successful marriage. Some of them have watermelons that re- represent a certain thing, and the pomegranates on them re- represent fertility. So it's sort of just like, here you go, you're becoming a woman, uh, you're going into this new chapter of your life. So the coats have all kinds of colors depending on the region. So we work both with Suzanis from Tajikistan as from Suzanis from Uzbekistan. So if you go, like we went together with Ethical Fashion, we went to the Urgut. It's a small little village in Uzbekistan where they're really specialized in like a certain kind of Suzanis. We were at the Urgut market, which is sort of like one of the central hubs for buying old vintage and newly embroidered work from all over Uzbekistan. We collect them from all over the Silk Road. So... It depends on which one we find, and with those, we make new codes. I have a question for you, Jeanne. We are now working together on your label, uh, Zazi Vintage, and our collection has been written up by Vogue America and stocked by Matches Fashion. Can you explain something about it and how it began? So this collection that we made together with Ethical Fashion, it began the moment I, I met Simona and I met him at the, at the conference and I was like, he was standing on stage and I was like, wow, I don't know this man, but I want to be really friends with him right that now. That happened to me. This is something you <laughs> do. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I was looking. That's the reason why they sent me to conferences. <laughs> it's the Italian charisma. And it's not just the Ita- No, but actually, I'm praising you now, Simone. No. It's not just the Italian charisma. It's the passion and the absolute dedication with which you attack your work. Mm-hmm. It's very, it's very it's compelling. much appreciated. Mm-hmm. Thank you. That and making people stand in their power. Like whether it's an artisan that you meet in the workshop of Zulaika mm-hmm. in, in Kabul, where you kiss their hands and where you welcome them, mm-hmm. or it's the biggest hug you give to one of your team members. Mm-hmm. I feel that everybody that surrounds you, you make them feel in their power. And I think that's a gift that not many people have. Thank you. Ah. That's really... That's yeah. really yeah. I'm speechless. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Thank um, you. I mean, when I met Simone, we just went into a first initial meeting. I was already working in Afghanistan, but I'd never been there myself. And then he told me, like, okay, we have this new, very beautiful project coming up that will involve nuts and fruits and saffron, but also fashion. And we found this amazing woman called Zulaika with the most beautiful story. And we really want you guys to create something together. Okay, how can we sort of mix the two worlds together of Zuleika, which really, Zuleika has the best tailors in the world. Like, we've never seen pattern placement like this, and we've never really seen, like, it's like you see, even in the way that they send us the merchandise from Afghanistan to Berlin, like, everything is wrapped, like, it was almost, like, meditatively wrapped in, like, the perfect precision. And it's really beautiful to see. So Zuleika is very much known for her, like, great jackets that have the perfect fit, and I think we're a little bit more loose than that. I was like a super hippie in Berlin. 
I was teaching yoga in the parks. I had a great world vision, but had no idea how to put this into reality. Because in Berlin, there are a lot of young world changers, but it's just very hard to figure out how you can actually manifest it. And I learned way more and more and more just about the fashion industry. And I felt like many clues in my life had led me to this point of thinking like, I'm meant to do something with this, but I don't know how. You were scouted as a model when you were very young. You told me that for a moment it was thrilling and then you worked out you didn't really like it. <laughs> but it offered you an opportunity. Yeah. But it also offered you a kind of crazy synchronicity moment. <laughs> yeah. So I was, I think, the world's worst. No, not worst. Well, actually, I was quite bad. But I was the most unsuccessful model in the whole world. I had a modeling agency in Germany and I was there for two years and I had one casting and one job. And I remember at some point I came back from my travels in Ethiopia and they called me and like, John, we cannot believe this, but we, you have a job. We've booked you this major campaign. So I was like, oh my God, that's great. You know, this was a big amount of money for me. And I was like, wow, that's great. So I went to the job and it was like the typical model job. I was putting a lot of makeup and everything was photoshopped and nobody really talked to me. At the end of the job, the stylist gave me this t-shirt from this brand, and it's a really well-known fast fashion brand. So for me, I used this money to travel. At some point, I was in South India, um, and I was wearing this blue top. And all of a sudden, there was this lady, and she came to me, and she I think she recognized me or my top. I mean, quite obvious somewhere in some place in India. She took my hand, and she was like, I have to take you somewhere. So she took me to one of these slum areas that was next to this big polluted river. The woman told me she was working for a local women's rights legislation program. And then the woman that was sitting there, she sort of just said all sort of stuff in Hindi, but I didn't really understand what she was saying. But there was some recognition. And when we were drinking the tea and talking about our children and she was showing me some pictures, I saw a big bag of diapers standing on the side of the room. And then the woman that took me there was like, actually, this woman is working in the factory where your T-shirt is made. And she has to wear those diapers because she gets locked up for 16 hours per day and earns 150 rupees per day, which is pretty much equal to like a pound 50. And has to produce, I think, over 80 to 100 of those T-shirts. And I think this for me was just like this moment where I had like shivers all over my body. And then I think I realized the modeling that I was doing, like how the system was exploiting every single body in the system. We need to look at this in the eye. And we need to look at this when we shop as consumers. And the only way to go is to ask what is the reality behind every product and to ask whenever you are in a shop, whenever you are online, because you now shop a lot online, to ask, 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 tell me more about who made this, about the reality behind this product, what is the human face behind this product. I think sustainability, like I very much believe, I mean, I've spent so much time at so many women's communities all over the world. And whether that's an indigenous tribe in the middle of the Amazon to the high mountains of Tajikistan to like the South Indian tribal areas, the thing that drives me most is seeing how women all over the world are explaining the divine through cloth. And I believe that especially there are so many communities that we can learn from all over the world that have their own way of connecting with the land and I also believe that sustainability doesn't lie in an organic cotton or in a rose petal silk I believe that the future of sustainability is having this connection to ourselves to the things that we're wearing to the things that we're eating to the things that we're consuming because I believe that the sustainable revolution is just only like a connective revolution 
This is a typical statement of a millennial, and I think that the typical customer of your collection, the typical customer of yours, is uh, the millennial or the centennial, the younger generations. Do you really design your collections for them, or you just design for yourself, and then naturally you appeal to this kind of audience, or you also appeal to another kind of audience? It's a it's like a conversation. So I never designed myself. I always designed together with the artisans. I think that's the most most beautiful thing because they have such a profound knowledge on how to work with certain textiles and they have such a beautiful way of of explaining that. When I design, it's what I would love to wear what within not just like the physical. That's physicality. exactly the point. You it's direct like, well, yeah. the game because it's what you like. It's what I like. And it's perhaps your desire of authenticity also that drives you because you are very strong on that. In all our conversations, you always mention that, the desire of authenticity and therefore the work of the artisans and therefore also the social sustainability, which is part of this conversation around authenticity. There is no authenticity without social sustainability. I'm also impressed by the fact that you are very transparent about your pricing and your way to do things. You publish all your costing, all your pricing, everything. And I know big brands that are not able to do it mm. because they don't know the whole the reality behind the whole of their supply chains. While you do that, mm. you personally visit all the places where they make things for you. You personally engage with people, with their lives in a conversation, which is a total conversation. I think this characterizes your work as well. A desire for authenticity, which takes you to sustainability and to transparency, to total transparency. I find this very unique. And we see this more and more, but it's not a common feature mm-hmm. in this industry. Absolutely not. It's bold. I actually wrote something down. I'm going to read it and we'll share a link if you want to read more. But this is from your website, Jeanne. And you say, we want you to know the complete story behind our garments and why the prices are the way that they are. Without knowing the story behind them, our coats and dresses can be considered quite expensive. But we've chosen to break down the final retail price by every single aspect that goes into it and you've listed the breakdown of everything from like yeah. materials costs labor yeah. transportation even the yeah. customs and the packaging everything oh my god there's so much that goes into making one of our garments like it's it's again this conversation like how can you make the most sustainable product while still working within the system and the system is what marks it up and also the pricing of what goes into like even just the packaging we have upcycled sari bags but then we want to have the embroidery done by the embroidery ladies in the village so they have a livelihood and then we want to package it in upcycled boxes by this German company and then another upcycled box comes on top of it and in the end and this, the ink that we use is all vegetable ink so every single aspect of Zazi is thought through and that is money like it costs just a box to send it in costs us 25 euros. And then we're not even talking about the labor that's behind it and the team that I'm trying to sustain every single day in Berlin that's trying to make all of this happen, that calls the Afghan family until three o'clock in the morning or that calls the, the, the Indian woman. But at, you at, see, what you are describing is the role of fashion as a bridge. Yeah. You're a bridge. Yeah. A fashion brand like what you have created is a bridge between between cultures and between different spheres of work. On one side, you bring together all those who collaborate with you to develop the collection, but also the consumers in this conversation in which you engage with them. And on the other side, the artisans. And when you are a bridge and when you are an open bridge, there is a continuous exchange 
change. By the way, bridges are very important in the history of the humankind, in a, as a metaphor, but also as a physical thing. And in the old days, the Romans used to have a magistrate charged with the maintenance of bridges, and that magistrate was called the pontifex. Mm-hmm. Even today, the Pope is called the pontifex. He is. Yeah. Didn't know that because, because it is supposed to be a bridge in between the humankind and God. Mm-hmm. So building bridges is the, one of the most beautiful things that fashion can do. And this is the way in which you have structured your own business. This is the idea that I have developed about you. Yeah, 100%. You're also really feeding into this idea of the true cost, which obviously the film that Andrew Morgan made in 2015 did change the conversation around this. Yeah. But As Simone says, most brands don't tell you the cost of every little bit that goes in towards making the garment, right? But absolutely, they don't want to disclose the reality behind the supply chain. Why not? But because they don't pay all the cost of a product. At the end of the day, labor is not often well paid and it's not often paid up to the very end. I mean, there are countries, big countries for fashion, where you still have people working at home on behalf of some coordinator. And these people are paid like a few euros per day. Oh, they, it's are, happening in Italy. It's that's happening in Italy. That Luxury was, brands. And I'm not saying anything. This was disclosed by the New York Times. I'm, I'm just referring to that. And then you have all what is not paid on the environment. There's a huge amount of externalities of this industry that are not paid for. By doing this, you have all the cheap, fast fashion. But sometimes you have also the big fashion out of that. Because tell me a thing. In terms, in financial terms, this is an industry where you have unbelievable margins. Oh, my God. Where do you find the margins of the industry of fashion? The big industry, I mean, not a young brand, not a new new venture like what you have done, but the big names. The the bottom of the chain. The the garment worker who gets squeezed always. 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 And those, those huge margins must come out of something. So they come out of good planning and retail and communication and this and that, but also from something that you don't pay properly. And it's that component that we can eliminate also because mm-hmm. by restructuring the business model, and that's another thing on which I am very vocal. Jean, and take the example of Jean. Jean developed a business model to be sustainable. So her aim was to be sustainable. The whole business model is developed around that. While normally sustainability is some accessorial, some side thing that it is added to a main business. And normally, actually, the people who run the show don't really want to Don't really want to be sustainable. CSR programs are something to make provision for some risk, and that's all. But the business is not built, is not meant to be sustainable in itself. That's the difference. This is is the hard thing, because we live in an unsustainable system by definition. And I think this is like the major challenge of our age and of our generation. This is the hard thing. So That's what the drives of you? Today. Connection, bridging worlds, um, women, creation, and purpose. But your purpose, I mean, it sounds to me, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, mm. but like you want to redesign the whole system. I mean, the way that you're doing it is very challenging to the existing paradigm. Pretty much. <laughs> Like, with Zazie, I want to show that it, that it is possible. Like, that would be my ultimate dream. My ultimate dream is to have, like, that Zazie is almost like this big women's collectives where all women from all over the world bring in their translation of the divine of how we're going to make this future happen with all of us together into something wearable, into something that can stand for something. 
And if you think about purpose, it's nice that you mentioned this word, Jean, because it's the word, it's the key word also in the discussion today around conscious capitalism, capitalism with the purpose, which is which goes beyond profit, which is about society, and profit is a happy result of doing good business, which means also a different idea, a different vision about stakeholders, which is the, the community mm-hmm. as a whole, which is the customers, blah, 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 which is about leadership, which is about engaging everybody inside the company so really? purpose it's it's great that you have that you mentioned this word like this among is, your words this is what you need i mean in the end you arrive in this world with nothing and you leave with nothing so the only thing that that your life is meant for is try to make sure that you can put as many people in their in their power and if that is within like a conscious capitalistic system by sustaining their livelihoods by giving them a voice then i think this is the most beautiful purpose that one can have indeed we love business with purpose it's a feature I want to go back, though, to your family. What kind of kid were you? What kind of family did you have growing up? Um, tell us where all this began. I grew up in The Hague. I would say that the surrounding where I grew up in was very conservative. My parents were the most chaotic artist that area had ever seen. My dad makes movies about the magic of 17th century light in Dutch paintings. <laughs> quite specific. Uh, Quite, really quite specific. It's just like mission for 10 years of my all of my childhood. And my mother used to be a fashion journalist turned art historian. So my childhood was was with the artists and, and the sculptures. And then my mom had a lot of spiritual friends. So there was this Reiki healer talking to this crazy artist called Merlene Dumas or Jan Andriese. And this her house was like this hub. But she was also, your mother was also a really great fashion journalist who reported yeah. on all the shows in the 80s. And, and Vivian Westwood and yeah. Like, I remember she told me all of these stories about me, meeting Vivian in like the late 80s. Seriously? Yeah. Wow. And she had this like great Westwood jacket and she was part of like the idealism of that age and she believed in fashion and what it could mean and the stories that it could translate and like the women that were behind the forefront of making yeah. change without words. And I think that exact thing I very much got from my childhood. So fashion for me was this magical world. Hey, Jean, I read an interview with you in a magazine where you described yourself as a university dropout, (laughs) then a street musician in Paris. Tell us about this. (laughs) So, yeah, although my my parents were beautiful, but like chaos, and I'm quite chaos, but my, my parents really took it next level. And I went to a quite conservative school where I never really fitted in. Like all of the girls were wearing their jeans and their Uggs. And I was wearing like myself, I would get curtains from the charity shops and make it into a skirt. And I would like <laughs> wear my father's bow tie. And then I would wear like my mother's Westwood thing that I secretly got from her closet. So I was a complete outcast at high school. But then at some point I thought like, you know what? I think all of these people are onto something. Maybe I should just go and study law and mathematics in um, Holland and pledge for a sorority. So I arrived there in this full costume and then... How long did you last? Three days. <laughs> <laughs> I knew the answer yeah. to that before I asked. <laughs> but then a street musician. Yeah, so my last year of, of high school, I learned to play the ukulele and I was in my high school band. We performed all over Holland. We were called Lulu and the Fancy Tans Living Music Palooza. It was what? a very long name. And what does it mean? What does it mean? Like, well, because my best friend had a dog called Lulu. So we really loved the dog. And I think she created the name. And we were like, we were with seven or, or eight people. And, and at some point, we just 
sort of did all of these things into Holland and I learned how to play the ukulele. But then you and got then, on like a cheap bus and ran off yeah, to Paris, right? So I, what I did after my high school, and I told my dad, like, dad, I'm not going to work. I'm not doing his university thing. So he said, like, fine, figure it out yourself. Because he did the same thing when he was 17. So I had 250 euros on my bank account. From, from the first 10 years, I dyed my hair red, like bright red. And I bought a ticket to Paris for five euros because there was a thing called uh, Megabus. I'm going to Paris. I'm going to figure out my own life. I got 250 euros that will last me a month because, of course, you're young. So I arrived in Paris and I was sleeping at this hostel. And then after, I don't know what it was, maybe like a week, my money ran out. And then I started playing with my ukulele in the in Le Tuilerie. I don't think it's allowed, but I was doing it with myself. And at some point, there was this person that threw um, a euro coin in my hat. And I was like, this is great. I'm onto something here. And then I met this beautiful collective of street musicians. And Paris is amazing. I lived off old bread that I would get from bakeries and raw onions and um, had the best time ever. 18. <laughs> You're a free spirit person. Tell us the story of how you were in India and you found what you call your Indian mama. So I started selling vintage on the markets, just in like the Berlin markets. I got connected through a friend of mine with my Indian mama. And then we met in the Blue City. It was a super hot day. We sat there at my favorite restaurant called Gypsies. And we had this What's big... the Blue City? Jodhpur. Ah. So there's a Blue City in Rajasthan called Jodhpur. And my Indian mama called Madhu Vaishnav lives there. The major problem for a lot of like small NGOs is that they're either dependent on international students or volunteerism or donations. So in the end, this is not a very sustainable way of, of sustainable development. And I think that's also what Simona sees together with, with Ethical Fashion Initiative. Like it's, it's work, it's not aid. In the end, work helps way more for a small community than an aid project that will make their exit in two years. So when I arrived and met her... She told me, like, Jan, we really don't need another white girl because we have three of them and they're not doing that much. So if you really want to figure out a way to sustain the village, then we need to figure out a way together on how to create jobs. And I loved fashion. So I called up my Afghan family. I was just like, do you happen to have ikat from the 60s? And they were like, possible. So they sent me these like few meters of ikat. We made a dress with her local sari tailor who cut out the pattern from old Indian newspapers. And then we brought the newspapers to the village together in Masterji, who always like was shaking his head and smoking beaties inside of the women's house. And then we made the first seven dresses. And then we photographed them together with a friend of mine who was traveling in India with a local Indian model. And then I came back to Germany and I was like, great story. How do I get this to the world? So I went back to Berlin. I had seven dresses. I had no idea what to do. But I was just like, okay, let's try to make this work. So I knew that the PR agency was following Zazie's Instagram. And at that point, it had like 900 followers. And I had 200. And I just posted yoga pictures and had some vintage pictures on there. And then they invited me over. And there it is like this super serious, amazing, powerful fashion PR house in Germany and Switzerland and Austria. But they saw something in you. Yeah. Yeah. I'm interested to know a little bit more about how you work with the artisans. You told me some lovely stories and I wonder if you might share some of them with us now, particularly around how you have this dialogue with, for example, the embroiderers that you work with in South Uzbekistan or um, I think you told me about a women's collective in Tajikistan. I can't even <laughs> say it, never mind, go there. <laughs> I'm going to leave that in. Yeah, so I think... 
I mean, my favorite thing in the world is being uh, surrounded with women that have such a strong relationship with what they create. So I travel a lot around. I mean, then again, from like the deep Amazon and seeing how they weave while singing the song of the spider goddess, while taking the cotton from the jungle, or while looking at the cross-stitching embroidery collective in Tajikistan and seeing how they built their cultural dialogue or their dialogue of what they believe in um, within their textiles that they use every single day. And I think having this dialogue in between women, because this is like, this is what we've always done. Like, this is how culture evolved and this is how things moved in the world. So I think for me, like my, my pillar of Zazi is trying to personify all of this. It's great to hear you really having a completely different view on this to some of the established views that we know are actually just not working very well. And I'm thinking about, at the moment, as we record, there's yet another story of cultural appropriation in Mm. the news. And so it's all over Instagram, the hashtag, give credit. But these missteps keep happening with established brands. I wonder if you've got thoughts on that, Simone. It's true. These things happen, always happen. I remember once... uh, during our heydays in Kenya, now we are a big producer in Kenya, but in those days we were still struggling and a major brand came up with a, a bag, a clutch, with Mazai beadwork on it. And we were in touch also with some of these people. Not only they didn't give this work to us, but also they didn't give any any credit on that. And I remember that... that but they're was, producing it somewhere else. They were producing it in Italy. I remember this very well. I went to, to track the whole story of the bag. Yeah, these things happen and they, they are negative because at least you have to give credit. The best way to give credit is to give work to people who belong to that culture. That's the best way to do it. On the other hand... Identities are uh, flexible. Identities are not cast in bronze. And so we cannot be extremely rigid also on cultural appropriation and so on, because if it is well done by giving work to people and so on, cultural appropriation can also be a vehicle of, of development, can also be a vehicle of, of work creation. What Jeanne does is, is positive because she but works... But Jeanne's in, co-creating. Jeanne's, Jeanne's co-creating. Appropriating. That's a very that's different true, but, thing. Mm. But in some time, simply by giving work, by giving the possibility to be part of this, or by opening a door, opening a window and giving thus all the credits to a culture. I repeat, on identities, I know people, I have friends who are very rigid on this. Identities are flexible, are not cast in bronze. This is one of the problems of today is that everybody has the regard of Medusa. The mythological character, no? She, uh, whenever she laid her eyes on somebody, that somebody became in stone, cast in stone. And identities, as they are meant today, are like the eyes of Medusa, cast in bronze, cast in yeah, stone. Yeah, but you know it's why? It's the weight of history and the continual. It's everything. But yeah. it's, it's also the continual disrespect albeit by mistake in some cases, of cultures that aren't represented and the voices that are not at the table. And that's, I think, something that we have to recognise in the fashion industry and really Our make sure that we respect the fashion industry has, has a long way to go indeed on this, on the respect of identities, on the respect of culture. You have to be careful when you touch identities, but you also have to consider that identities evolve. Nothing is... Ca- also because if we believe in peace, we believe that we can change, that everybody can change. 
I wouldn't work in Afghanistan or in Mali if I didn't believe that one day we can have peace there, which is to say that one day those who bring about war can change their own identity and come towards us and we can change our own, our own identity and walk towards them. Peace comes out only of the possibility of evolving your identity towards the others. The moment in which you cast your identity in bronze or you do the medusa of the situation and you are set in stone, you are lost. There is not even a possibility of peace. What is the dialogue for if you cannot change? I think for me that it comes down to two things. One is respect, which we need to make very sure that we're checking ourselves constantly to ensure that we Mm -hmm. have we've done the best we can but the other is just learning isn't it it's just learning like I mean I think I'm 100% aware like I come from Holland and I I don't I've never done a DNA test but I think I'm as Dutch as possibly can be and Holland has most likely the worst colonial history in the world for me working with Zazie has been a very big teaching and a very big mirror because I have not been told about cultural appropriation in high school we talked a lot about our colonial history so working together with culture and working with women every single day from areas that are either an economic way not equal to what we have and this is fashion this is this is food this is all the other kind of things so I totally it's it's back to the dialogue so I think for for me like the most important thing is that we bring back this dialogue and I've learned so much because I've had so many collectives that I worked with and then the women said like cute idea lady but we don't put that exact sign on this place like you cannot wear that scarf that scarf is is like only for this occasion and I think then working around this and thinking like okay so how can we make this into something that works for both of us and how can we evolve this into something that we can bridge to all kinds of women in the world and then by explaining your story and explaining your story and making sure that everybody's equally heard and that the money that goes into production is equally given to every single body in the project, whether it's a girl from right now from Bangladesh that works in the Zazi team or whether it's a, a woman in India or whether it's me, that all creators have an equal part of the share. When you would have told me as a 15-year-old girl in Holland that my purchasing on the other side of the world would impact this woman in Bangladesh or India or China or Vietnam in such a negative way, it's really hard. Because when there is no identification process, there is no empathy. And when there is no empathy, there is no change. And I think when we can facilitate through fashion, through storytelling, that bridging process, what we go back to the pontifacture. Pontifex. Pontifex. <laughs> Simone, is, Simone is like just here for the Italian yeah. cultural history moment. She's all good. If we can facilitate this, this identification process by telling the stories of all of the amazing people that are behind our garments or that can be behind our garments when they're in their power, we can change not only the fashion industry, but any industry. Thank you for listening, my friends. Did you enjoy the show? Let us know. We'd love to hear from you. You can find us online at ethicalfashioninitiative.org and we are on Instagram at ethicalfashion. Just don't shout because I feel like it's quite ah, okay. noisy. Okay, just the rest. Yeah, yeah, go on. I have the syndrome of the... Well, you have silent or the, shouting. <laughs> yeah, no, I have the syndrome of the presenter in, in an old uh, Italian ballroom. Uh, ah. where I, <laughs> I love it. Because I used to be a waiter when I was in university. And the waiter, I used to work in a restaurant which after dinner was transformed into a ballroom. So 
It was fun. So did you say, and now it's time for the dancing? And now, adesso si balla! <laughs> and everybody, boom, boom. <laughs> Can you help spread the word and share our story with your friends on social media? Our mission is to work towards sustainable development and create long-term impact in the communities where we operate. Through extensive training and mentorship, we build capacity and enable artisans to produce for the international market. Through this program, workers are empowered and can lift themselves out of poverty. Not charity, just work. 